So, Colossians 3, starting with verse 1. We'll be reading 1 through 11. And I'll just read the first couple of verses, and then we'll, then we'll go, go a little further um, as we get through, through the evening. Verse 1, if then, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, we ask once again, Lord, your spirit, Lord, take these words that were written by your servant Paul, but inspired by your spirit, Lord, now and sink them deep within our spirit. For, Lord, you know what we need more than we can even comprehend it. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the opening premise of Colossians 3, let me get our pizza, right, there we go. The opening premise of Colossians 3 by Paul here is very straightforward. It's powerful. It's crystallizing to our priorities. Don't you like when things crystallize your priorities? I really do. I pray, God, I pray to God for wisdom things. There's times where I really don't know. Lord, is it A, is it B, or is it C? You ever been there? And you're glad when God makes it clear, crystal clear, and all of a sudden, poof, two of them are taken out of it. Then you know, right? But it crystallizes our priorities. It lifts our heads and it lifts our eyes away from the earth and up to heaven. You know that old saying you probably heard, so heavenly-minded, no earthly good? Not true. Anyone that's truly heavenly-minded will be far more earthly good. There's never been anyone that's too heavenly-minded. We're told here to look to where Christ is seated. Psalm 3.3 says, it's the Lord that lifts up our heads. Now, one, we're told to lift our heads, but thankfully God helps us lift our heads. The Lord helps us do that. We're prone we're prone to temporal thinking. We're mired in the distractions of the world. Everybody, to some degree, is mired in the distractions of the world. They just kind of pull on us. It's like uh, in the same way that your floor is never 100% clean. The second you sweep it, skin cells are falling as soon as you walk back through. You can't see it, but it's never 100% clean. We have the, we're prone to be just kind of attached to things, things that clutter our minds. But we have a lifeline out of this fallen world. We have a lifeline out of this world. And not just when we're called home. Our lifeline's not just when God brings us home. But now, if we, if, notice what he says. This starts off with an if statement. If, if we've been raised with Christ, if we've been raised out of death, out of sin, I didn't say that we never sin anymore, but we're out of the penalty of sin, out of despair. We actually have a living hope. We have an eternal hope. We have a calling now. Now, we've talked about this in other studies, Ephesians. We all have a calling. 
We've been called here to seek the things above. You know, I wonder, I wonder what I should be doing with my life. Seek the things above. Seek the things above. This is going to be a permanent and significant change of focus for us. Now, when you, before you got saved, you had a different set of things you were looking forward to or looking at or placing your attention on. It's going to be a permanent change of our focus, a permanent change of direction versus our former life. We're naturally inclined. See if this rings true to all of us. We are naturally inclined to seek the things of this world. We don't have to have anyone teach us to seek the things of this world. We're naturally inclined to seek the things of this world. We're naturally inclined to make ourselves comfortable rather than available. God says, make yourself available to me. We're naturally inclined to make ourselves comfortable, but not necessarily available. Nobody has to practice being earthly-minded. Nobody says, man, i got to really work on being earthly-minded. I'm just not that good at it. I really need to work on my earthly-mindedness. I need to get better at it, perfect that fine art. It's why we can so easily browse and read things we're not even really that interested in. We can scroll social media and volumes of information, not even wondering, why am I doing this? We can watch movies we've seen a hundred times and know every word to them. And we'll do it again. It's why we can watch TV reruns, knowing every punch. We even know when the clap's going to be there. And yet we wonder, I don't know why I don't have any time to read the Bible. I just can't seem to find the time. Because our mind is naturally inclined. We don't have to train it to the things of this world. It's already there. But Paul says, if you've truly been raised, if you've been changed and transformed by Jesus, if you were raised with Christ, you went from death to life. Raised means uh, you were dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking. We've been transformed by Jesus. It's now time to seek the things of God. It's time. It's past time, isn't it? Some scriptures say it. Say it's past time. Well, the writers actually write those words. You see, you've, you've heard of uh, uh, ministries that are focused on finding seekers. You ever heard that term, seekers? Nothing wrong with it. Don't get weirded out. People are seeking. They're seeking all kinds of things. And sometimes in their seeking, they run into the Lord, to the gospel. They run into you. They run into me. They run into a church for no reason. I remember, you know, um, you know Mike Berner, who's one of the Calvary Chapel pastors down in, um, now he's in North Carolina, Charlotte, but he's riding down on his Harley one day, seeking a bar and saw other bikers going into Calvary Fort Lauderdale's parking lot, and he thought it was a bar. He ended up in a church service. Two weeks later, he's saved. Saved out of, you know, working for the Hells Angels and the Mafia, all because he thought these other bikers, which were Christian bikers, were headed to a morning bar. Who goes to the bar at 10 a.m.? But bikers do. You know, so he was seeking something, and he found Jesus. But we're glad that people are seeking and find Christ, but seekers are not just those that are seeking truth and coming to Christ as new converts. Those of us already in Christ, we're called to be seekers for a lifetime. Of what? 
We're called to be seekers of a lifetime of this, the will of God and the kingdom of God. We're already in it, and yet we're supposed to be seeking it. Doesn't that seem a little bit, Jesus says, all right, you're already in the kingdom, and you're supposed to seek the kingdom. We're to be seeking it the rest of our life. Now, Jesus said it this way. He said, seek first the kingdom of God, didn't he? Seek first the kingdom. And now Paul is reiterating that same command here with an added emphasis. If you look back at the text, if you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So we see actually the throne of Jesus here. We don't, he didn't mention the word throne, but what is Jesus sitting on? Sitting on a throne. It was always his. He had left the throne to come down and make himself like us, dust and walk this earth. But Paul is reiterating the command here with the added emphasis that the one who gave the command, he's now sitting on his throne. So Jesus, the very one that said, seek first the kingdom, is now sitting in his kingdom. And now Paul's saying, look up to where Christ is. What is Paul really saying? He's saying to keep our eyes on the kingdom of God. Keep our eyes focused on the kingdom. Keep our eyes on the finish line. Right? That's what he's really saying. He's saying, look to where you're going to finish, not to where you're at right now. Look to the finish line. Keep your eyes on eternity. Keep your eyes on the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Now, it won't be easy, as the rest of the text will show us as we go through but it will be so worth it. Amen? Do you believe that? I can say it. Do you really believe it will be worth it to focus your attention on the kingdom of God, to focus on where Christ is, to focus on the finish line, to focus on the righteousness of God? Do you believe that will be worth it or not? Because the more we believe that, the more it will transform us. And it'll actually, you ever put binoculars up to you and at first it's blurry? It will actually start to focus that. It'll actually fine-tune. We'll see more clearly. We'll believe in heaven more clearly. We'll believe that Jesus is on his throne more clearly. We'll believe that he's actually sitting right beside us in this room more often and not forget about him for hours at a time. We need to believe it's worth it. We need to believe he's worth it. Amen? As much as we needed to believe, as much as we needed to believe the gospel at the outset of salvation, we need to furthermore believe as much and continuing and adding on more, deepening our belief, growing in faith, if you will. We need to believe even more that that is our home, that that is where we're headed, that that is where our attention needs to be. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time tonight, Changed by Jesus. Because if, if we, he has changed us, he's going to change our focus. He's going to change our view. He's going to change our priorities. He's going to change the way we approach life. He's going to change the way we approach people. He's going to change the way we approach problems. He's going to change the way we approach our own flesh. And we're going to need to know how to approach our own flesh. Because you're stuck with it for this entire lifetime. Bad news there, huh? You're still stuck with you. I tell people all the time, you can run anywhere you want, but you're going to take you with you. So you might as well let the Holy Spirit get control of you because then you don't have to run around and find new places to 
find tranquility, find purpose in life, find, you know, some peace of mind. Find it by looking up at Jesus. Amen? That's what he's saying. Even when we know what we should do, we need help and guidelines, and that's why God raised up apostles and prophets to write the scriptures. And that's what we're going to look at the guidelines that Paul laid out here this evening. If you're taking notes, the first thing we want to look at here in these first three verses, setting the mind, starts in verse 2, set the mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, by inference, it, it basically tells us that our mind is already automatically set on the earth. We're going to have to make an adjustment. We don't have to train our mind to think about the earth. I said that from the beginning. We already do that. So we're going to have to purposefully, intentionally set our mind on things above. In Psalm 26, 2, it says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. I ask God that sometimes. Lord, where's my heart really at? Where's my mind really? Because I can't even tell sometimes. Can you? I mean, so, I mean, there's a certain amount of us that we can't even tell how much we even believe something. But we know we have a mustard seed. Or and in my case, I say I have at least an atom. And since God can see atoms, I know he can see my faith. Right? He said if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. That tells me that many of us, in fact, all of us, are lacking faith the size of a mustard seed because I haven't seen any of us move mountains yet. But God sees subatomic particles of faith too, doesn't he? And so we got to start with something. Say, Lord, I know that my mind automatically is set here. Help me, Psalm 20. Prove me. Try me. Show me where I need to grow in this area. And God, help my mind and my heart to believe. We have to ask God, where is the compass of my mind set, Lord? Show me the things that are, that are actually pulling me away from you, pulling me away from the vision of keeping you at the center of it all, like we sang earlier. Now, we pretty much know, and most times we, we do have a pretty good idea where our focus and intent is, don't we? But we still want the Lord to help us show us even spotlight areas that we can't see, even those corners, those blind spots, if we, you will. We have blind spots sometimes that we don't even see that are hindering us that we're not really looking up, we're actually looking down in some areas. Help us to fix and keep our minds. It's one thing to fix your mind on something, but then you have to have it stay there. It's not the old saying, set it and forget it. It doesn't work that way. You've got to set it and keep focusing on it. If you... Um, I. I don't ride horses, but I only did it a couple times. Neither time was it a great success, but um, one time it was boring because we just were in this long line of someone taking us slowly through. It's another one of these corporate outings. I don't know why they do these kind of things. But anyway, and the other time I was back in high school and uh, a girl I was dating, her parents owned orange groves, they owned horses, and a bee stung the horse from behind, and I wasn't expecting it. You have to be vigilant at all times. I got dismounted like I like shot out of a uh, uh, you can't just like just set it and hey I'm just I'm just gonna chill out right here. No, you've got to be vigilant. 
focused on what it is you're doing. Now, where our minds are at, Paul says, set your mind on the things above. Where our minds are at, our actions are going to follow. Where our mind is at, our actions will follow. If it's set on the things of the Lord, the path of the Lord, then the steps of the Lord will follow. If we're set, say, Lord, I'm setting my mind on these things. Thinking about your word. Meditate on your word. I've started uh, just this week. Uh, I started a thanks journal. I've done a lot of prayer journals. I've done a lot of, um, you know, just journaling. Uh, I'm not near as diligent at it or as good at it as my wife. I mean, she's got like a library now like this. Mine's like this and hers is like this. And I, and I probably still do a decent amount, but it just doesn't compare. She writes everything out. I write, I, I write my Bible a ton. I mean, it's, it, it is like it is my master journal, if you will. Uh, and other Bibles that I've had before. But I just started this week just a thanks journal. And, uh, and I'm just going to keep writing it until I fill the whole thing up, and I'm going to get another one. And I don't know how long I'll do this. It might be the rest of my life. It might be a two-year thing. It might be a six-month thing. I, I don't know. I'll know when, like, Forrest Gump stopped dr- running. I'll just know when I'm supposed to stop running. You know, just kind of like the Lord will tell me, all right, that's it. You've done. Now you can go back to just saying them. But for now, I'm just I'm keeping it with me. It's in my car right now. I'm writing all kind, anything I can think of to be thankful for. Just re- and it, what's weird is it's already, they've already become little micro prayers for me. Every time I write them, they become a prayer because we're told in everything you give thanks with supplication. So they actually go hand in hand, but that wasn't the way I... But um, I'm writing them down against selfishness, against doubts, against complaints, against frustration, against fears, against anxieties, against just things that would, would be counterproductive and oftentimes they're just our flesh, right? So as I write them down, I say, Lord, these things, I'm going to meditate on whatever is good and lovely, and that's everything you're doing good, whether I recognize it or not. But Jesus said, even if you gave a cup of water in his name, it would be it would be of value. So if you receive one, you can say thanks for it. But the scriptures tell us in everything to give thanks. In everything. You can even, if you decide to do it yourself, say, hey, I like that idea. I'm going to do it myself. You can. I mean, there's no copying, copyright on this kind of stuff. You can say, Lord, I'm going to do that myself. I just want to give you more thanks. We can even thank God for trials. You can write it down. It may just be when we write these things down a few times, God says, now I'm going to lift them. Once you learn to say thank you in every, because it says everything. So just write it even if you, well, not, what if I don't believe it? Just write it. A lot of times the Bible says just write this down. I don't know how it works, but it's just that step of obedience. I, wanna, I want to even more diligently set my mind on the will of God. I have to more diligently do it. We're going to, here's the thing about my little thanks journal as I'm writing through it. We're going to give thanks a lot in heaven. I'm just practicing. We're going to give a whole lot of thanks in heaven, aren't we? We will say thanks to God probably millions of times in heaven. We'll have all eternity to say thank you. Start practicing. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. To trust in God only happens when we focus on God. 
We have to focus on God to trust. We have to focus on the promises he's made to trust those promises. Now, if you ever say, well, I'm having a hard time with some of the promises of God because some of them haven't come true in my life yet, the one you have to just go back to is the cross. That promise and the resurrection trump all the other promises, so then we're able to say, if God kept the one promise that's essential for eternal life, all other promises are going to be fulfilled too, including the individual ones to you and me. So we have to trust him, but we have to meditate on the name of Jesus and the person of Christ to trust. Now, verse 2, it also says, uh, not a, it set your mind, so we know we have to set our mind in a certain direction and to trust the Lord and to focus on these things, but not on things of the earth. We have to also, since we're already predisposed to the things of the earth, we have to practice turning off distractions. We have to practice. And, and it's don't try and go cold turkey on every single thing in your life. Just start with something to say, I'm good. You know, there's times where I'll say, all right, for the next four hours, I'm not picking up that phone. I'm not picking up that phone. I don't care if the president texts me. I'm not pick I wouldn't know because I didn't pick up the phone. But uh, I don't, whatever's going on, just don't pick it up. Lord, I just want to hear from you. Turn off distractions at times. Daniel had a high, important job, didn't he? But he spoke to God in the morning, the middle of the day, and again at night. He made time to move. He actually would, we actually know he blocked out distractions because he would go up to his upper room, open up the window facing Jerusalem, and get away from everybody else and just hear God. He had that discipline to make time to tune out the world. We have to meditate on the holiness of God. We have to meditate on the faithfulness of God. You just talk to God say, God, you are so faithful. Well, say, I feel weird saying that. You won't after you say it a while. Then you'll feel weird you're not saying it. Why do we say these things? Well, he says in verse 3, for you died. So I'm still alive. Well, physically, but we died to the old man. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Why is this so important to focus on the Lord and to turn off the distractions? Because according to Jesus, we've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. We died to the old man. We died to this concept. We died to self-lordship. We died to little us on the throne, which was always a mirage anyway, Right? Because we really don't have any power over anything. If we did, then I would have cured myself every time I had the flu. I would have said, flu be gone. We don't have any power. I would have, when I was trying out in high school, I would have said, Tim, grow four inches because you will be the prototype swing forward. <laughs> we don't have any power. But we have this mindset that we're, we're kind of the god of our own little kingdom, if we will. But we died to that. We, we, we came to the realization that we aren't on a throne, but we are to bow before the throne. Amen? That's what he said in the verse 1. Look up to the throne where Christ is seated. To remember that you, get, you got off the throne of your heart wisely and knelt at the foot of the cross. And so now we have to set our minds on the work of God. We have to set our mind on the, on the person of God where Christ is seated. But also he says... 
on the things above. What are these things? That's a long list. We don't have time to go into it tonight. But what are the things of above? Well, Jesus said it was the work of the kingdom. All the things that come under the umbrella of go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all these things, right? Teaching them the doctrines, the commandments, the word. It's basically making disciples. We have to set our mind on the work of God, not just the person of God, but also the work of God. Remember, we've talked about this in Nehemiah, that God puts something in our hand to do because idle hands really aren't good for us, are they? We have to focus on the right things about God, but also do the work of God. You can't just say, well, I have great respect for my boss, I just don't do my job. Right? They go hand in hand. The respect for authority and actually doing your job. And so God says, if you love me, obey my commands. Go do the work in the vineyard. Go labor until I return. Jesus said, I'm going to return. I'm going to find, will I find faith of the earth? Will I find my servants doing the things I've asked, to, asked them to do? So this is part of setting our mind. So we still have to earn a paycheck. We still have to take care of the kids. We still have to clean the house. All that stuff doesn't go away. We still have the functioning things of being human beings until Jesus calls us home. But we go to work and we live our life, but we go in the mindset of representing God in everything in word and deed, right? We go with the mindset of representing the Lord in all that we do, all that we say, what comes out of our mouth. To speak is the oracles of God, the Scripture says. Because we have so much Scripture in us, Scripture will then come out of us. Pastor Chuck went through a period of time years ago where he said, I don't know how long he did it, but he said he just was answering people, no matter who they were, saved or unsaved, grocery store, car lot, you know, neighbor, with something that came to Scripture. He wouldn't quote it as a verse, but he would just use a scriptural precept and answer them that way. I don't know how long you can do this and, and get by. I mean, some questions to me may not compute, but I guess the longer you walk with the Lord, you probably will have a whole lot more ways to answer scripturally. And he said he just wanted to see if it didn't change all the dynamics of working with people, that they were hearing Bible whether they realized, realized it or not. I thought it was an interesting thing. I don't know how the rest of the teaching went because it was a lunch break and I, didn't miss, I missed part three or something like that. So you don't have to find out. But, but we set our minds on fulfilling the will of God. Uh, we are sent here on the earth to invite people to heaven. It's a big part of it. And if you say, well, is that really a, is that really, can it be that simple, inviting people to heaven? Yes. Jesus told a parable, Matthew 22, verse 9. He said, go invite them to the wedding. He said, anywhere. He, go, he said, go anywhere, invite people to the wedding. You're inviting people to the wedding in your life. Set our mind on eternal investments. That means that work, whether it's in our home, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's here at the church, and the collective families here, uh, we are setting our minds and our effort on work that builds disciples, encourages people, rebuilds. Remember in Nehemiah chapter 4, I like, I like connecting our teachings so they're not like two disconnected things because the Bible's not a disconnected book. It's two loaves of the same, or two halves of the same loaf of bread, if you will. Uh, Nehemiah 4, 6. We read this verse together just a couple weeks ago. We'll pick back up with Nehemiah 4. This Sunday, so we built a wall. The entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to what? Work. They set their mind on the work of the Lord, not just 
the person of the Lord, because the person of the Lord always will have us become servants. We are called servants of the Lord, not couch potatoes of the Lord. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Nowhere in the Bible says spectators of the Lord. It says soldiers, it says athletes, it says farmers. By the way, athletes, farmers, and soldiers all exert a lot of energy. And we do that because our mind is set on the Lord, but also the work. So we set our minds on fulfilling his will. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Not only do we set our minds on the Lord and the work of the Lord, but the produce in us, never mind the fact that we please God and touch other lives, is life and peace. You know, people are trying to find that. You know, they're trying to spend money at the ABC store and, you know, uh, uh, you know all kinds of uh, just kind of things that are just fleshly and destructive. We're going to get into that in just a second. But we can set our minds, and not only do we find a deeper walk with the Lord, not only do we then uh, find that we're fulfilling the work of the Lord, but we also have this spiritual life and peace that comes to us. Now, one final reason in verse 4, and we're going to move on. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Well, this is a big, this is a big uh, you know, kind of highlighted area here. And it's as simple as this. We're going to see Jesus much sooner than we think we are. Those of you that are getting older and up, and we're all getting older, right? But some of you might say, well, I'm still young in my mind. Some of you say, well, I know I'm not young anymore. But you, you can remember being young like it was yesterday. I can. I look at my, you know, I, I had to go do the uh, driver's license ceremony with one of our daughters this week, and I'm there, and I'm looking around like, I can't believe I'm a middle-aged man with an 18, a 17-year-old daughter, and I look around here, and I'm like, these other dudes are a bunch of middle-aged men with seven, you know, I bet they can't believe it either, right, you know? <laughs> I saw people I knew, and, you know, we probably both can't believe this, you know, we'll, we'll blink, and it'll be weddings and babies and all that kind of stuff, and, and life moves very fast. And he's saying here, when Christ, who is our life, appears, you're going to see Jesus sooner than you think. Jesus said our redemption drives, draws near, not far, near. He said in Revelation, he should, said, surely I'm coming what? Quickly. Quickly. Jesus doesn't exaggerate. We do. We'll have barely tasted life when that new and eternal life, who is Jesus himself, appears, or will appear before him, whichever one comes first. Moving on, let's look at, uh, we have to set the mind. We have to sacrifice the flesh. This one's a lot of fun. It's, easy to, it's easier to set the mind, in one sense, it's not. Setting the mind is not easy either because our mind is easily distracted. But saying goodbye to the flesh is, is its own difficult journey. But yet we're called to both, aren't we? There's no wiggling out of these things. And you wouldn't want to if you could because that you wouldn't find that peace. It surpasses all understanding if you could wiggle out of it. That's what everyone else is trying to do. That's why they can't find peace. Sacrifice the flesh. He goes on, he says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons 
and daughters, of course, of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. All right, so all of that. Sacrifice the flesh if you're taking notes. Second thing we want to look at. I don't know when the cliche, you're dead to me, started or became some quip in our vernacular. It's usually said jokingly. You know, almost always, I always hear. But every now and then, I have heard someone say it for real. And you know which one's joking and which one's not. It's usually said jokingly, but every now and then someone says it. But um, I'm sure it's been said more often than I've ever heard it, even with anger, but mostly I hear it in a joking term. But um, people by nature have very little issue turning a cold shoulder to other people. Listen, listen. People by nature, they don't have much issue turning a cold shoulder to people. But nobody wants to turn a cold shoulder to their own flesh. We have a hard time saying to our own flesh, you're dead to me. We have a harder time saying that to our own flesh. See, our flesh still wants the desires of our heart. I know this every time I pass Dunkin' Donuts, right? Every time I walk, you know, the new Publix, I love that I walk down and it lights up as you go. It feels like you have like superhero powers or something like that. And the ice cream aisle or something like that. The flesh calls. I'm not saying that it's a sin to have it, but it's certainly, well, it's not too much of it. It's certainly isn't good for us. We diligence and, and some self-discipline is required. And the flesh says, no, you don't need discipline. Take all you want. We have a hard time saying no to our wants and our desires unless, and we really can't say no to any of our fleshly desires. We really can't. We were a slave to unrighteousness before salvation. We were in bondage to sin. We could not say no uh, to sin, but now that we have, if we've been raised with Christ, well, that means we have the Holy Spirit. He's come to take residence. The Holy Spirit the good news is the Holy Spirit definitely has the power over sin. Amen? We don't, but the Spirit of God does. And then and only then can we place our flesh on the altar with the help of God. We have to want to obey, but we have the help of the Spirit to do it. This is our command from the Lord. And it's one of the evidences that we've been born again. One of the evidences we've been born again is we do put off the old ways. We have a genuine willingness, really a genuine willingness to say goodbye to the dictates of our own heart, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We have a genuine desire to put it to death, to put the flesh to death. Maybe the first time you started coming on a Wednesday night, you didn't really want to come on a Wednesday night, but the Holy Spirit said, go, you need to go, you, you need more of the word than you think you do. You need more. It's like, just like, um, I, you know, you read these things, you're supposed to be drinking like a gallon of water. I'm so bad at drinking the total amount of water I'm supposed to be drinking. I don't know if anyone's really, some people might be really good at it. But there's always, you need more than you think. You need more of God's word than you think. You need more of the presence of God than you think. I need more than we think. And so we need his help to put everything else to death. 
Now you look at this list. Fornication, verse 5. Fornication. This can cover all sexual sins. The literal um, participation of them here. This is not just the, the mind's action. This is literally the participation of any and all sexual sins. It can include adultery, anything, uh, you name it. Uncleanness. That would be filth that we let into our lives. Impure minds, impure motives. Passion. The, the real synonym for this is lust. Just pl plain old lust. Passion uh, equals lust. Evil desires. This is a destructive craving. And really what it is is a craving for the world. A craving for what the world has to offer. All that glitters in the world. A craving for uh, the sexual things in this world, the pleasure things in this world, uh, the monetary, just a craving for what the world has, evil desire. Then you have covetousness, which he says is idolatry. And a lot of Christians in they say, well, you know, I, I, I look at this list and um, I, I only, uh, I'm pretty good at all of it until I get to covetousness. Which in and of itself is probably not inaccurate we're actually not near as pure on all the lists as we sometimes think we are. I bet you if you stand before Jesus tonight and he says, let's go down that list. Roll tape. <laughs> you said you're really good at that list. I found you broke it a lot. And you're like, please, grace, 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 grace. And you're thankful for grace, right? We've got to stay humble with a list like this, but we also have to be honest, say, Lord, cleanse me of the things in this list. And covetousness is lust, by the way. Coveting what your neighbor, oh, man, I, I have to stay away from really nice trucks because they just really make, they just, they just, I need to be around beaters, you know? <laughs> I'll see those nice ones, I'm like, man, that's nice. Get it out of my mind. Attention, though. God doesn't have spoiler alerts. You know that? God doesn't have spoiler alerts. He, sh he has straight-up warnings, doesn't he? Look at verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There's no hiding this from God. The wrath of God is coming. This isn't preached in many pulpits anymore. I get that. And I don't yell and scream, and I don't preach fire and brimstone, but I'm not going to not say what the Word of God says. Paul says the wrath of God is coming. It's like a freight train coming down. You, you ever seen when a freight train is coming in, and, and some poor car accidentally gets stuck on there? Guess who loses? I mean, hopefully people jump out in time and use, you know, usually they're wise enough to do that. Um, the oncoming freight train takes out anything in its path. And God's a whole lot more powerful than that because these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sun's and daughters of disobedience, uh, anyone that is ignoring and resisting the Lord. Judgment's coming. But he says it's also, this word coming is also kind of a present tense as well because partial judgment has already begun. If that happened, partial judgment started in the Garden of Eden. Death entered. Remember the great flood? The whole world was judged except for one family. Partial judgment is already coming. The full judgment will be worse than the world has ever seen. And yet people, uh, we, have a, we have more people in history right now that are atheists than any time in, in world history. They think there is no God. They think that all these things, they can 
do whatever they want, say whatever they want, uh, be whoever they want. Um, and yet someday everybody will have to stand and give an account. And after that, what is the judgment, the Bible says? The dictates of our flesh, he goes on here. He says in verse 7, in which you once walked. Isn't that a great verse? Paul takes a step back. Hey, you used to do this, I hope. You used to do this. This is how you used to live. You used to have that kind of arrogance that, you know, I haven't told a long time. I used to have a a co-worker when I was um, uh, in in health health and fitness trying to finish school, and um, he he was Native American. He he despised Christianity. He, He just, he liked me. We got along good even though I was a Christian. He liked me, but he didn't like Christianity. He called it a white man's religion and all this other stuff. And I would explain to him, like, you know, it's from the Middle East and all that. I was going to go through all this stuff. And I'd be like, you know, uh, I'm not from the Middle East. And I would kind of explain. None, none of it mattered. He just kind of was determined that it was just, uh, he hated it all and all this stuff. And he said, when I, when I get to heaven, I'll stand over top of God. I'll stand right over top of him. And I, I wasn't mad at him for saying that. I mean, God has way more patience than I do because I deserve just as much wrath of God as he did. But I would just tell him, I said, it won't go down like that. It will not go down like that. But I, had, I, could, I could relate to his anger about things. For as I got saved, I was angry about other stuff. Anger is anger. It doesn't matter what you're angry about, right? Anger is anger. And I had my own issues of things that I was angry about. So I could understand in some respect where he's coming from, but that was the old us, that verse 7, in which you used to walk, you used to be foolish, you used to say things that you realize now, I'm glad God didn't strike me right then. Because there are a lot of times we should have been struck down, right? In which you used to walk, I mean, you used to live in this way. The dictates of our flesh is our past. And now, we should have a healthy level of remorse. We, we should wish we could go back and fix some things. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I asked everyone to raise your hand, if there's something you wish you could go back and fix, every hand should be up, right? There's a lot of things we could wish we could go back and fix, but we can't. But now, circle verse 8, but now. Isn't that a great but now? You don't have to live in the past. But now, but now. Now, God is the God of new beginnings. Jesus is the Lord of new beginnings, We wish we could go back and fix some things. We can't, but he can. But now, now we have a fresh start because we have a clean heart. Fresh start, clean hearts. I pray that to the Lord a lot. We have a fresh start. He's given us clean hearts. We have new desires. And because we have new desires, we can cut the strings on the old things that cling to us. Because some old habits do die hard. You're saved. You don't want to do that, but they are habitual, and they do need to be put to death. Some things are harder to put to death than others. Some things will fight back, right? But they still have to be put to death. Yes, um, it's true that a battle still goes on between uh, our flesh and the spirit. Paul highlights this, uh, this war in Ephesians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. And that's actually inside of us. It's really a weird thing. I mean, I, I've been saved for, you know, since 1995, so 23 years now, and, and yet I'm still amazed that I still have a battle between the spirit and the flesh. It never goes away, but I, but I hear, you know, guy, I heard, you 
hear Pastor Chuck talk about it when he was in his 80s. And, you know, it doesn't end that you are going to have this, but it's a winnable war. Isn't that good to know? It's a winnable war. You're going to have some battle scars winning this war, but it's a winnable war. And it's won by death, and it's won by surrender. It's won by death. Most wars aren't won by death. Well, they're won by the other side dying. This war is won by us dying. Isn't that interesting? He says, because he said, you died to yourself. This war is won by us dying. Now, Jesus already died and rose, so he's not going to die again, but we have to die. We're told in Acts 19, 18, and 19, it says, Luke, uh, who... who, um, uh, recorded for us what took place in the book of Acts. Luke says uh, in the 19th chapter of Acts, uh, speaking of those in Ephesus, he said, And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They took all their magic books and burned them. Why? Their outward display reflected an inward dying to the old ways. They were worth money. This wasn't just like uh, they could have sold them, but Guess what they did not want to do? They didn't want to sell sins to someone else. Hey, yeah, we should put this on eBay. 500 bucks. Well, why would we want someone else to be in this sin? If you have something that causes sin, no matter how much profit, you can't take a profit for it. You've got to light a match to it. Not literally, but it's got to go. The outward display directed, it showed that they truly were cutting the cords to their old sinful ways. They didn't want to be attached to those things anymore. They didn't even want in the house for a temptation. You know, if you leave some things around, the temptation's there. You've got to remove the temptation. Get it out. So we're told in Romans 12, 1, to be living sacrifices. To stay dead to the old and live to the new. We're alive, but yet we're dying daily and continually. This flesh has to die daily. Because it gets back up. That's the problem with living sacrifices. Living sacrifices are partly alive. And they tend to get off the altar, right? That's us. We're supposed to stay on the altar. We get off the altar. Prone to wander, as the hymn says, right? A.W. Tozer says, The reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little progress, uh, little forward progress, because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders, and we're interfering with God's work with us. We're still trying to tell God, oh, well, I don't want to really give this up yet. And God says, you have to. This is a hindrance. Our flesh wars against the Spirit of God within us. But if we yield to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, thankfully, is so much stronger than our flesh. We have the winning side inside. It's so much stronger. Our love for Christ. Our love for Christ will activate a rejection of sin. Did you hear me on that? Our love for Christ will activate a rejection of sin. So I don't know how to reject sin. Love Christ more. Well, that doesn't seem like, you know, that, that's the key to the ignition, my friend. The activation for a rejection of sin is to love Christ more. The more you love Christ, the more it activates a rejection of sin. I didn't say Jesus was tempted for 40 days. I didn't, didn't say temptation won't come. Temptation will still come. Jesus was never even remotely moved by temptation like we are, but... His love for the Father, it was like a brick wall around him. He was never going to fall. But we can activate a rejection by loving Christ more. Love for Jesus. 
uh, will also, our love for Christ will activate not only rejection of sin, but an attraction to righteousness. The more we love Christ, the more we're attracted to righteousness. And the things of the Spirit, they won't look boring to us. They will look deep and wonderful to us. Love for Jesus will produce intentionality that's built on grace. In other words, you'll be intentional, I'll be intentional, but that even that is built on a foundation of grace. It's not like, well, I've gotten really good at being intentional. Well, now you're just prideful, so your foundation's gone again. So it would be built on grace. By God's grace, he's helping me be intentional. By God's grace. Just say everything by God's grace. And I don't mean just, just kind of like pat myself on the back way. I'm saying with some sincerity. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, right? It's a daily thing. We've got to keep having it renewed. All right, last thing. Coming to a close here. Last few verses, uh, verse, actually two, uh, just verse 10 and 11, and we'll come to a close. And have, uh, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Stand in newness is the last thing if you're taking notes tonight. Stand in newness. So God wants us to be new, but to stand. He wants to make us strong in the Lord, right? He wants us to all to be Joshua's, right? Strong and very courageous. Not in our own strength, but like Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I have to tell myself that all the time because God calls me to many things that I say, Lord, I'm not even remotely qualified to do this. I'm not even remotely bold enough for this. The Lord says, it's not about you. I could use a piece of dirt if I want to. True? He said he could make the rocks cry. Jesus said, if any time I want, I'll make the rocks cry out. He's never really needed us. But he's made us new, and since he's made us new, he wants us to stand in this newness. Put, off, put on the new man. When you stand up to get ready for work, you stand up and get dressed to go and do but to be who God's called you to be, to be the person that God has done this new work in. We've been made new. We now have a new nature. Yes, we battle the old nature, but we have a new nature and a winnable war through the Holy Spirit. And we have to preach to ourselves that we're new creations. If the only time you get preaching is from me, then you need more. Start preaching to yourself. I have to preach to myself. Like I said, I really, whether you were here tonight, tonight, if there wasn't a soul here, I would have preached this message. To me. I really wouldn't care. Every time I heard that true story about the, the man that went and preached in an empty lumber yard, and years ago I told that story, maybe I'll tell it again sometime. That stuck with me because he went, God told him to preach there, empty lumber yard, he thought nobody was there. Instead, lumberjack was way behind the wood pile, had forgot something, heard it. Goes on and gets saved. Three other people. I just told you the story. So anyway, that's how it goes. But that was the small version. But ever since I heard that, the Lord told me, you have to preach to yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to remind yourself, I'm a new creation now. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. The enemy's not going to tell you that verse. We have to tell ourselves. Well, the Holy Spirit will prompt it. But we have a... He says... Uh, Put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge. What does that mean? We have a renewed knowledge, a born-again knowledge of why we were ever created. 
This is what Paul's getting at. Remember, you have to be born again. You have to be born the first time for the second time, but there is a first Adam, and then Jesus is the second Adam, right? We have a renewed knowledge of why we were ever created. Before we were saved, think about what was lost in the garden. What was lost in the garden was sin is found in Jesus in the garden where he, ro- he rose in a garden, sin condemned us in a garden, Jesus set us free in a garden where he raises uh, himself up in the garden tomb. But with salvation, we know why we're created. Adam and Eve, before sin, they knew why they were created. After sin, they didn't know. We now know why we were created. We weren't created to be better people, smarter people, faster people, more famous, more rich, more powerful, more smug, more successful, better looking. Uh, And by the way, better looking, reality sets in that that doesn't stay that way anyway, right? But none of those things, we weren't created for any of that stuff. We were created. Once we're saved, we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we, we know, we don't know much, but we know that we were created to reflect the grace of God. And we were created to worship and serve God. Adam and Eve were created to reflect the grace of God and to worship and serve God. Once we're saved, we now know why we're created. Then we don't have to perform anymore. We don't have to impress people anymore. We can love people but not impress people because we're doing it under the Lord. If we forget that, we slide right back into self-worship and pride. We remember that, we go right back to worshiping the Lord. We forget, we slide back into self-worship. But there's something else here. God is three in one in the image of him who created him. Remember, creation is mentioned here in verse 10, in the image of creation. Uh, God, when he said, let us make man in our image, God is three in one, isn't he? But yet there's three distinct roles. Jesus is all human and all God, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, We have that reflection, but you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You have this oneness, but three distinctly different roles in the Godhead. Now, we, as the body of Christ, because this is not just written to an individual, this is written to the Colossian church, we are many pieces, we are many parts, we are many different roles made into one body. We're one family, worldwide even. We are a new man and a new woman individually. In our accountability, we are individually accountable. Amen? You'll stand by yourself before the Lord. We are individually accountable. But even though we're individually accountable, collectively we're dependent on each other. Does that make sense? We're individually accountable but collectively dependent on each other. For what? For maximum health and maximum growth in the Christian life. Maximum health and maximum growth. No person is my church is out in the forest by myself. No, it doesn't work that way. You know my love for the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I say it every now and then. Uh, see, growing takes time, doesn't it? It takes abiding. It takes abiding. Uh, it, it happens because life slowly, t- the new life in us slowly takes deeper root. Uh, we're not to be islands. Trees come in all different shapes and sizes, but together they make a forest, right? Together they are a forest. One tree does not make a forest. You need a lot of them coming up together, and they, they, uh, the shade works 
together for everyone, and there's a lot of benefits. But if you want to go fast and you want to fly solo, one, if you want to go solo and without the body of Christ, because he talks here about uh, a collection of Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, all these different people from different backgrounds were put together. If you want to go solo and you want to just say, I want to do my own thing and, and just kind of be on my own, one, that's pride. Two, it'll fail. And three, it's not God's plan. God's in the business of building a one big blended family of a bunch of adopted people from different tribes, different backgrounds, different cultures, all fitted by grace. Now, we're never to put our culture above Christ. I love cultures. I love different cultures. But Christ is above all cultures. Amen? Christ isn't for this skin tone or that skin tone or this culture or that culture. I personally think Latin American food is way better than Norwe Norwegian food. But that's just my pea brain opinion. Someone else might think Norwegian food tastes better. There's neither right nor wrong with that stuff. It's just the diversity of what God's created, right? And Paul said even beyond that, whether you're Greek, Jewish, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, they were the most vile, ruthless, you know, uh, uh, attacking hordes of that time period. And he says, it doesn't matter. Free, uh, there's no hierarchy. You're all put into one big blended family and all equal footing at the cross. Amen? So we're standing in this nudist, but we're also standing together. See, a big part of being a new man is to be humble, considering other people better than ourselves. So a wealthy person wouldn't say, well, the slave is not as important to me. No, no, we all say we're, we're new in Christ and we're equal in Christ. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Philippians 1.27, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, Abraham and Sarah, they were two people, but they were unified, and you have an entire nation comes from two coming together. But when three come together, four come together, five come together, all in newness of life, just think, what could the Lord do with a group of people? What could the Lord do with a group of people whose minds are on Christ, whose minds are on eternity, whose minds are on the work of his kingdom, who have died to their own flesh, who are walking in love and they're not walking in lust? What could the Lord do with an entire group like that? Who are walking humbly together, who are walking in newness of life, who are working together and seeing everyone as valuable, both in the body of Christ and out of the body of Christ, and that the God that created him and the Savior who died for them sees them as equally valuable, regardless. I've been focusing, I'm closing with right this, this right here. We'll bring it to a close. I've been focusing a lot of this week. I, I posted it and I, I put it on the men's. I've been post, focusing myself, uh, meditating a lot on this seven-word verse, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase but I must decrease. And uh, D.L. Moody used to, he quoted that verse a ton in his preaching and to himself and everyone in this room. We have to decrease. That's part of being new, is to die to ourself that the glory of Christ would, would raise up. And it, as that raises up, our eyes lift up. And as we all decrease and Christ increases, disciples will increase. Peace will increase. 
Salvations will increase. Joy will increase. Healings will increase. The more we decrease, the very things we want to see increase, and we know God wants to see increase, will increase. Amen? I had not thought of it, but I can't remember who wrote it, but you know, even John the Baptist dying paved the way that Paul comes shortly after and kind of fills his shoes and takes it to a whole other level, well beyond the, the area of Judea there. And it's true. God will always take our decreasing and multiply it like fish and loaves. Amen? Let's close in prayer. We barely scratched the surface of what Jesus wants to do. Lord, we thank you for this faithfulness of your word. Lord, fix, help us, Lord. Help us to set our minds on things above. We're so easily distracted, we, we don't have to practice Jesus being earthly-minded. That is part of our natural sin nature. Lord, help us to see with your eyes those things that are hindering us and to take those steps of dying to those things, laying those things aside, and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to examine ourselves. And if there are things, Lord, that are there that uh, that you would just cleanse us and forgive us. And Lord, lastly, that we would walk in this newness of life. Help us to preach to ourselves that we've been made new. But stay humble. And Lord, know that uh, we are only anything at all by your grace. And Lord, that you've put us together and that we would knit together in this family. And Lord, help and, uh, just to help each other to keep collectively our eyes fixed upon you. We thank you for this time this evening, Lord. I pray that you water what was planted by your word here tonight. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.